Imcognoscendi, and that's the Word of God. So we, we put our, our emphasis on the, our foundation of truth through the Word. Now, in order to have a solid foundation to build our apologetic, where we're going to defend the faith that we talked about, we, it's important that we know it. So we worked our way through. Remember the doctrine of Scripture. Talked about where the Bible came from, how we got it, the important things for us to realize in the transmission of the text and the, uh, the developing of the canon of Scripture. Uh, then we've moved into the attributes of God. So that's kind of where we find ourselves now, uh, working through the attributes of God. So tonight, we're going to uh, start with light, unless anybody had any issues unresolved yet in our discussion uh, last time. when We talked about uh, evil and where it comes from and ultimately who's in charge and God's providence and so forth. Good. Then we'll go on to light. My plan is that after tonight, uh, next week we'll be starting the Trinity. Um, I'm hopeful that we can do the Trinity in, in three weeks. Um, but it depends. Uh, we could do it faster. But um, I want to spend some time on it because probably one of the number one areas that you're going to be charged to defend. You want me to move over here? So you can have that spot? You tell me. Okay. Um, but one of the number one areas that most cults or isms are going to attack is the Trinity. So it's, uh, it's an area that it's important to learn the foundation of, where the concept comes from, where we find it in Scripture, and, and how to defend it. So, so we'll be doing that next time. I'm probably going to sit down because I've been working on this house. And my back's tired. I don't know. I don't have an excuse. I'm not 20 anymore, and I feel it. But there are people older than me who do better. So, I don't know. No good excuse. So, let's look at light. We're going to talk about the fact that God is a light. And what do we mean by that when we say God is light? So, there are many dimensions to what it means for God to be light. He's spiritual light, He's a great illuminator. He is radiant glory, and He is the giver of light. So let's take a look. Scripturally, what do we have in the Bible that discusses God as light for us? 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-nine. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. Psalm 4, 6 tells us, There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And Isaiah 2, 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah 10, 17, so the light of Israel will be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. Isaiah 60, the sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor brightness shall the moon give light to you. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light and your God, your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the, the Lord will be your everlasting light and the days of your mourning shall be ended. 
Micah 7, 8. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Next, we see God as the illuminator in Matthew 17. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them again and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Uh, John 9, 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 12, 46 says, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. 1 Timothy 6, 16. Who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light. 2 Peter 1.19 And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 1 John uh, 1.5 This is a message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, seven, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Uh, Revelation 21.23 The city had no need of sun or of moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And Revelation 22.5 There shall be no night there, shall be no lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. The Bible also tells us the light of God is like His radiant glory. God is clothed in light. So Exodus thirteen twenty one says, The Lord went before them uh, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. And Isaiah 61 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. And ultimately, God is the giver of spiritual light. Psalm 13, 3. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Psalm 19, 8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In Acts 26, verse 18, To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And 2 Corinthians 4.4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, <coughs> should shine on them. So the Bible lays out for us this idea, this concept, in, in trying to comprehend the transcendent God, that, that He is both light and the giver of light, that our understanding on earth, I think a lot of times we can glean from what God says about himself. Whatever God, however God describes himself, and we have 
earthly examples of. For example, light. We turn on a light switch. We, we have an idea what light looks like. Um, as far above that as we can go and still comprehend it, that's what the light of God is like. But he uses these, these uh, uh, earthly examples that we have so that we can know more about him. In other words, if I want to know where to go in the darkness, God's my light. He'll provide direction. God's word is a lamp unto my feet, right? So his, his word will direct me. God wants to show me the way to go. So, so in, in understanding the attributes of God, we have to recognize that part of his attribute is that he is light. And in him is how much darkness? No darkness. Yes, sir. Well, metaphorical is not bad, but I, I would say, yes, he's using for us the, the examples in, in many of the scriptures that we can glean from that says, okay, this is how light functions in the dark place and we can find our way because of the light. But when we go to places like Isaiah and Revelation, when he says in the new heaven and the new earth, there won't be a sun and there won't be a moon uh, because God will be there and the light of God is going to illuminate everything. Now, whether that looks in that place like we like a sunny day looks to us, I don't know. I don't know how how it is. We'll see. I don't know how it is. We'll the Bible tells us right now we see through a glass darkly. So everything is, you know, uh, shadows. But when we see him, then we're going to know as we are known that then we'll see clearly. And so there's there is certainly something that changes in the resurrection in the new body and in the new heaven and the new earth where part of who God is is going to be understood by we understand light. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's one of the objections to light. One of the one of the reasons people object to the concept of God being light is they get wrapped around the physical concept of light. And really what we want to see it as more spiritual, I think. So so I think seeing it as a as a metaphorical concept is good. That's right. Right. And the idea, too, is that the reason that growth is taking place is because God is shining his light in me. So he's he's enabling me to grow in my understanding and 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 so forth. So everybody good with God is light. I told you these were easy ones. The next one's coming up. We're easy, sir. Right. Moses, when Moses was spent on God, his face shone on his light. So, uh, so there was a physical light, but then also there was a light mm-hmm. that comes from within. That maybe the, the purity, the light just kind of Sure. So, so I guess what I want us to glean from it is, on earth we only really comprehend physical light. And, and God is transcendent. And the light of God is 
not just physical. It's so much more than that. So in the same way, because we're going to look at several things, we're going to look at beauty and majesty. It's the same idea. We have a comprehension. It's, it's, these are, are what's called communicable attributes. They're attributes that we can recognize on earth, that we see in people. You, you, you understand what it is when someone's majestic or when someone's beautiful. But when we say God is beauty, we're saying that the only way that we can really know beauty is to know God. Because it's in the knowledge of God that we can really understand beauty. And I think the same way with, with light and, and many of the attributes of God. That, we, that we're able to nail down a deeper comprehension of whatever that subject is because of God. Because we know Him. Alright, well let's look at majesty. Okay, the concept of majesty or majestic is represented by several Hebrew words. Uh, the range of meaning of the sentences in which they are used includes majesty, excellence, exaltation, splendor, eminence, and glory. Also, two Greek words, uh, megaliotis and megaliosun, which are translated splendor, magnificence, greatness, and majesty. Uh, the dominant usage of these words is of God, though sometimes they are used of creatures from the way the words for majesty are used of God, a definition can be formulated. So here we go. God's majesty consists of unsurpassed greatness, highest eminence, unparalleled exaltation, unmatched glory. So the idea that on earth we can recognize a concept of majesty. And then to understand the transcendence of God leads us to an understanding that says, wow, Yes, God's that, but the ultimate of it, beyond really what we uh, see and experience here. So we'll take a look at some of those verses. It says in 1 Chronicles 16, 7, Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Uh, 1 Chronicles 29, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. So we work our way through. Just see that. In the same way that we're talking about light, we're talking about not just what we experience as majesty or authority, but so much more, so much beyond uh, those things. Job 37, 4. After it, a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. And he does not restrain them when his voice is heard. Think about, you know, we look at the story of creation. How's it begin? The Lord said, and it was, right? God speaks, and it happens. No different than when Christ is standing outside of Lazarus' tomb. It's no different, right? When he says Lazarus comes forth, it's not like Lazarus had, he was going to say, I'm not coming today. No, God speaks. You come, you know, it's, that's, it, it, it works that simply. Um, let's look at Psalm 29, four, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Uh, Psalm 45, three and four, gird up your sword on your thigh. Almighty one with your glory and your majesty in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility and righteousness and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. So just building on that concept, the majesty, dominion, power of God. 
Psalm 93.1, we just did on Wednesday nights uh, a couple weeks ago. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. So again, the Lord, the, the concept of his majesty coming forth. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. When he arises to shake the earth mightily, in that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made, each for himself to worship, to the moles and the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks, into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Isaiah 2 always reminds me of uh, Revelation chapter 6. When you see the wrath of the Lamb being poured out and men are hiding under the rocks and in the caves and in the clefts of the rock. Where are they hiding from? The return of the king. The outpouring of, of his majesty, his wrath, uh, I think can be included in that, in that concept. Um. Let's go down to Luke 9.43. They were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, He said to His disciples, so we see the same terms uh, being spoken uh, both of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in Hebrews 1.3. Who being the brightness of His glory and the expressed image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right, right hand of the majesty on high. Second Peter 1.16 For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And Jude 25 When were they eyewitnesses of his majesty? Ascension, you could say. Transfiguration, I'd say probably the best part. Uh, I don't think you could argue that it, that it wasn't uh, a seen at the Ascension, however. But when uh, Peter, James, and John, we know were present, right, at the Transfiguration, when, they, when the Lord lets His glory out, cracks the veil of the flesh, and allows uh, His light to shine, the majesty of God coming forth. Jude 25, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. So it's important, I think, as we look at this and we consider it to to recognize what is it that is our response to the majesty of God. God is majestic. He's powerful. He's overall. He's he's transcendent. He he, um, uh, is due something from us. So let's look at our response to him. Uh, the appropriate response to God's majesty is informative of its meaning and significance. The scripture declares God should be greatly praised for his greatness. Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise in the city of our God in his holy mountain. That's a response. He, he ought to be repeatedly blessed for his blessedness. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. God should always be held in awe for his awesomeness. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And he ought to be forever given the highest honor for his honorableness. For you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. So there's a a response to the majesty of God. I like what C.S. Lewis would say um, whenever he he would discuss uh, praise and worship. And I can't quote it, but the concept I'll give you. That is that what you love, you praise. Men everywhere praise football teams every Sunday. Get in fights and arguments over who won or who lost or who got the better part of a trade because they are so in love with their team. We, in fact, call them fans, which is taken from a a term often used of religious fanatics. The idea of praise, it issues out of a heart that loves God. Scripture calls us in Deuteronomy in the Shema to say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Talk about next week. And you shall love the Lord your God. Right? That's, that's God's desire for us. We have the Ten Commandments, but what is it that Jesus tells us about the Ten Commandments? All the law and the prophets are summed up in this. What? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That love fulfills the law and the prophets. So falling in love with somebody you don't know is difficult, right? It's hard to fall in love with somebody you don't know. It's hard. A lot of people will come to church and they'll, they'll hear the message and, and the exhortation, but whether or not they're ever able to respond out of a sincere love of God kind of depends on how well they know Him. When we know God, when we, when we are driven to comprehend Him, to... to um, to dig out truths. John Piper says, if we spend our lives using rakes, we'll get leaves. But if we use a shovel, we can get gold. So we want to spend time digging out of God's word. I want to know you. I want to know you. One of the things that Kathy and I did when uh, we still have them somewhere in a box, maybe when we're moving, some lucky person will find it and open it up and can read them. But somewhere we got a box of all the letters we wrote back and forth during boot camp. When I was in boot camp and, and she was back home and, and, you know, after 24 hours, I was sure I just did the dumbest thing in my life. You know, everybody has the same story. But I still wanted to connect with her and I wanted to know her. So, so I would write to her and she would write to me and I'd read her letters four or five times, six times, ten times, whatever, because I want to know her. I want to know this person that that's going to be my wife. I want to know everything about her. It's funny because now, you know, in a human way, I I can look at her eyes and I can almost tell what she's thinking. Sometimes she thinks I'm wrong, but I'm not sure I'm wrong. But but because we know each other that way. And so what is it that the Bible tells me as a husband? I'm supposed to love my wife. And we read down through Ephesians chapter 5. It tells me that I'm supposed to present her like Christ presents me without spot, blameless. And so I'm to spend my time with my wife praising, exalting, extolling, lifting her up, especially before others, because I want to honor her. 
Why? Because I love her. Because she matters to me. Now, however we experience that communicable attribute of God, that means one that we can also experience, is a small fraction of what happens when we flip it and now we, we gaze on the Lord. Now we gaze on Him. So the challenge for us, and why I'm so thankful that you guys come, is just that prayerfully through it all, there's some nugget, some piece, uh, some chunk of an understanding of God that you're going to be able to pull in and say, I, I know this, I know more about God now. And I know that God is pleased when we want to know more about Him and we want to understand who He is and, and what He loves, we want to love, right? And what He hates, we want to hate. And we want to we want to be able to to comprehend those things. So the ability to respond to the majesty of God for you and I, for a believer, the reason a believer can respond with praise to the awesomeness of God is because a believer has already bowed the knee to God. We already surrendered ourselves to him. We we've already taken the humble state when you look at the the what the Bible calls in Revelation, the the earth dwellers, the the ones whose hope is in the world, they're running from His majesty. They're hiding from His majesty. They're hiding, even as the scripture laid out for us uh, in Isaiah, that, that they want to get away from that majesty. Why? Because they haven't submitted. They haven't bowed the knee to the sovereign, to the, to the king. But believers have, and our response is different. Our response is different. No different than, than tonight is the Republican debate. So tonight you're going to hear people in the crowd cheering at things that are very Republican in nature in their in their format in the in the what do they call their thing they follow platform. platform. So what whenever they say that, but if you have Democrats there, they're not going to be cheering, right? They went out. Same way if Republicans with Democrat. I'm not picking one over the other. I'm just saying you can see the difference between those who have submitted to a concept. And those who haven't. Sure, sure. Some people love it. <laughs> always stand. Yeah. You can always tell, oh, there's the Democrats. They're up again. Um, okay. Everybody good with the majesty of God? Oh, we're cooking. Cook. I could, I could finish all the attributes tonight if we kept going like this. The problem is after... After uh, immortality, we're going to run into Trinity. That'll take a little more time. Uh, okay, let's talk about the beauty of God, His beauty. Several Hebrew Greek words convey the idea of beauty. The range of meaning includes beautiful, good, pleasant, splendorous, agreeable, delightful, and lovely. The essence of beauty is that which is being perceived pleases. As applies to God, Beauty is the essential attribute of goodness that produces in the beholder a sense of overwhelming pleasure and delight. It's interesting because um, when uh, Doug Wilson did his debates with Christopher Hitchens. Uh, you guys know who Christopher Hitchens is? Anybody? Um, he's uh, he, he's uh, dead now, but he... Uh, was a famous writer, uh, author, and uh, atheist. Um, some would call him an anti-theist, uh, which means beyond not believing that there is a God in existence, he's 
hostile towards others who do believe that there is a God. And so they wrote a, a book together called Collision. Um, and you can, I've actually got the movie somewhere. You're welcome to borrow it from me if I um, can remember to bring it ever. But, but the, the, in the movie, part of their debate is they're debating um, the existence of God. And, and one of the areas where they debated, the concept of beauty came up. And, you know, Christopher Hitchens would say, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Some people find this beautiful. Some people find this beautiful. Some people find this beautiful. And Doug Wilson's response to him was basically the idea that the ability for mankind to recognize beauty is a uh, like a ghost of the image of God in which men have been created. There are things that man recognizes right and wrong, morality. There are things that man can do. A man can write a beautiful poem or that are, um, are part of the fact that they're created in the image of God. And so the ability to recognize and understand beauty uh, became a part of their debate. So it was interesting to watch them uh, work their way around the idea of the beauty of God and the way that you know, um, I thought Doug Wilson did a great job of pointing the man's ability to recognize beauty uh, is a result of the fact that God is exists and uh, was an inter- interesting part. So if you get a chance to watch it, I know in the in that paper I gave you guys in the beginning, the syllabus. Thank you, the English second language tonight. Um, I put down, take an opportunity to watch a couple of debates on YouTube. Christopher Hitchens and Doug Wilson and Christopher Hitchens and William Lane Craig. You get a chance to see the two schools of thought of apologetics. You may say, I like, I like um, evidential apologetics better. Uh, you'll probably like what William Lane Craig does more. But it gives you a chance to see both types of apologetics being utilized. And the uh, and the kind of argumentation that comes out of both. So, interesting side note on the concept of of beauty. So let's look at the biblical basis. First uh, Chronicles sixteen twenty nine. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Uh, Psalm 96, 9, I'll worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Second Chronicles uh, 20, 21. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who would, who should praise the blue, the blue, 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 who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Psalm 29, 2, give to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. And Psalm 96, 6, honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. Uh, Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have desired of the Lord and that I will seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. That's probably one of my favorites. Um, 
The scripture tells us that he also gives beauty to his creation. In Ezekiel 16, 14, it says, Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. In Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in our hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And in Genesis 1.31, when God created the world, what did He say? It was good. When He had saw everything He had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Okay implications of the beauty of god so all beauty comes from god remember god is our 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 principle every good and perfect thing comes from who our father in heaven right scripture tells us that so all beauty comes from god hence all beauty is like god all who create beauty imitate god we only think his thoughts after him we only paint his paintings after him there is no work of art that did not first appear or that did not appear first in the infinite mind of the creator of all things. Human artists are at best uh, only sub-creators imitating the super-creator. They merely think his thoughts after him, form his sculptures after him, sing his songs after him. There is nothing in the mind of the creature that was not first in the mind of the creator. Once more, all effects pre-exist in their cause. So the idea of, a, of beautiful paintings, beautiful artwork, not saying that paintings and artwork and songs can't be stained by sin. They can be, right? But the ability to recognize beautiful melody, beautiful form, beautiful things is, I think... Uh, um, a part of the the truth that the Bible tells us that you're in the image of God. You can argue all day long with an atheist who will say that it's society that has brought around uh, a, a, a rule of morality. And then they're going to have to say that the reason one morality is better than another is based on who's stronger. So might makes right. But they don't live that way. Right? Nobody lives that way. How do we live? We know right from wrong. We know right from wrong. There are things we will always say, yeah, that's wrong. That's wrong. I don't know how long, two weeks ago, when they found uh, uh, the baby in Twin Falls on Blue Lakes. Was there anybody who didn't think that was wrong? I don't think so. I mean, I saw a lot of stuff, a lot of outrage, a lot of stuff. On social media talking about the baby. So everybody thought that was wrong. When do they struggle with whether or not that's right or wrong? If you put it inside a mother, now all of a sudden I can't see that it's a baby anymore. You get what I mean? So there's a sense, there's a moral outrage over the one, but not the other. And a lot of that we see, you know, even today we have... Uh, Moral outrage over the the killing of children in school. Was there anybody who thought that was okay? I don't think so. I think everybody was like, that's wrong. 
That's wrong. Apart from God, why is it wrong? If there is no God, why is it wrong? If might makes right. But the problem is we're created, all of us, in the image of God. And the image of God within us shouts, that's wrong. That's not okay. We can suppress it, right? That's what Romans 1 is all about, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We can suppress it, but sooner or later it pops up. It pops up in our inconsistencies. It pops up. Um, and this, in the same way, I think the same way with beauty, there are things everybody recognizes as, man, that's beautiful. There are other things people call beauty that we know are, are uh, part of a fallen mind that's put together. And if enough people say the emperor has clothes, right? Everybody believes he's not naked. But somewhere down inside, we all know the image of God is saying, no, that's not beautiful. That's not beautiful. Our, our comprehension and our ability to, to see and recognize beauty, I think, hinges on the truth and the reality that God exists. And because God exists, we know good. And we, because God exists, we know beauty. Because God exists, we understand majesty. So, um, I put a, a thing in here on, the, on what's called the, uh, the, the blessed vision or the beatific vision. Um, I just thought it'd be fun to kind of discuss. The Bible declares that in this life, no, no mortal can see God. For the moment, we'll set aside the discussion of, of Jesus for now. Uh, no one is there. Let's just consider what we're reading about the Father. So the Bible declares that in this life, no mortal can see God. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. That's John 1.18. Moses requested to see God's face, but God said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. However, after our resurrection, immortal man in his glorified body will see God face to face. John wrote about that experience in Revelation 22. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. And they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. Paul added, when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. This experience is known as a blessed vision. At this point, the believer will be glorified. First John chapter 3, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. Dear children, or dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So in addition to seeing God as the ultimate and infinite good, we shall see Him as ultimate and infinite beauty. It shall be the ultimate aesthetic experience. No mountain, no matter how grand or rainbow, how bright nor sunset, however blazing, will compare, will compare with this infinite blast of ultimate beauty. God is that transcendent beauty. So the summary of God's beauty, God is beautiful. He is, in fact, the ultimate standard of all beauty. Whatever is beautiful is beautiful because it is like Him. All beauty has order and unity. 
God is the source of all order and unity. Hence, God is the source of all beauty. When we see Him as He is, we shall behold beauty, ultimate, infinite, unadulterated beauty, as it truly is. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that day. I look forward to seeing Him face to face. Right? Looking in His eyes. I mean, I, I just... What an what a amazing, glorious day. <clears throat> and when we think of it, it should move us to praise. Next, it brings us to God's ineffability. Ineffability, what's that mean? Basically, it means uh, we cannot adequate, adequately express the attributes of God with language. It, it builds on the concept that God is transcendent. And we run out of words. You ever run out of words trying to... I run out all the time. By the time I get to 7 o'clock, I don't even know how many words I spoke, but I'm pretty much done. So the... <clears throat> it's got to be the reason why I can't find them in my head. They're rolling around in there somewhere, but, but uh, they're loose. Well, the idea of ineffable means incapable of being expressed. Uh, theologically, ineffability refers to the transcendent characteristics of God that cannot be adequately expressed. doesn't mean we can't express them. It just means we can't adequately express them in human language. Although God can be apprehended, right? We want to apprehend that which God is to us. He cannot be comprehended. We won't ever fully understand all that God is. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect comes, the imperfect will disappear. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So the ineffability of God is we run out of words, the ability to express who He is. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. So there are things about God we are going to struggle in. It's a good segue to the Trinity. Which actually I don't think is one of them. I, I think we can lay pretty good hold to it. But, but it's, it, there are things about comprehending God that are, are going to be a struggle. And we are limited. How are we limited? Huh? We're human. What, what? Somebody else said mind, didn't they? We have a fallen mind, fallen reason. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit, truly. And the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. But, you know, that works really good on a, on a personal level, but not so good on an apologetic level. For example, I say, well, the Holy Spirit told me A. It's totally subjective. I've, I've actually discussed Scripture with people, and this, people tell me, well, the Holy Spirit told me this is what this means. And so my response usually is, well, the Holy Spirit told me that's not what it means. So now we're in an impasse. What do we do? We fall back on those things that we've been talking about. Our principium cognoscenda. What's the word say? Right? What is, what is the word teaching? What is the word 
got before us. So I'm not suggesting that the Holy Spirit does not lead us in the truth, does not guide us in the truth, but it's hard to argue that way, right? If you've ever spoken to a Mormon and you've, you've got him into a corner, he's going to give you his testimony. He's going he's gonna to lay out his testimony. Well, the burning of the bosom, I don't know if you guys have, have heard it before, but, but how they know that it's true. And my response is to respond that it's not. And that's my testimony. So now one blocks the other. What are we left with? We, we got to find truth, right? Where truth is. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So we, we want to be able to go to that place. But I also have to understand, you know, God didn't give us all the same mind, did he? I mean, some guys got minds that are unbelievable, multiple languages, and, and maybe we all have the ability, I don't know, but I wasted my time, so, so I don't have it now. So I got to use what I have, but I have to recognize in comprehending God, I'm limited by me. I'm limited by me. And the Bible tells us that that's going to be true, and, but it doesn't stop us, does it, from digging? From saying, I want to, I want to get this, I want to understand this. So we want to just keep digging. Job eleven seven says, "Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty?" Psalm one thirty nine, uh, the psalmist declaring, "Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it." Isaiah fifty five. We've all heard that, right? My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. What's he say next? How what? Unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. There are things about God we will struggle being able to express. 1 Timothy 3.16 Without... Controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. For God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. So let's talk a little bit about this concept. The biblical and historical word that most appropriately describes ineffable, um, the ineffable aspects of God is mystery. Uh, theologically, a mystery such as the Trinity, the Incarnation, the transcendence of God is something that does not go against reason, just beyond it. In short, on one hand, it does not violate the law of non-contradiction. It is not both A and non-A at the same time. And on the other hand, it is something that while we can apprehend it, we cannot completely comprehend it. The difference between mystery and problem is a problem calls for a solution and mystery calls for meditation. So, in summary, all rational creatures have a sense of the supreme and a sense of the sublime. God's majesty provides a sense of the supreme. God's beauty gives a sense of the sublime. We should enjoy all beauty as a gift of God, knowing that its ineffability is part of its fascination 
and mystery to ponder. In doing this, we are in anticipation of the incredible and ultimate beauty of heaven, the beatific vision, seeing God face to face. Meanwhile, however, God remains ineffable to us. We know Him only in part, indirectly, not completely or face to face. But we will. We will. Okay, two more that we want to take a look at tonight. You're going to get out before 10. Isn't that great? Uh, First one is life. God is life. To speak as God is life is to say two basic things. One, God is alive. And two, He is the source of all life. He is life intrinsically. He is life. While other things have life as a gift from Him. He is life. The difficulty again is in defining more precisely what life is. Whatever else it may include, life involves imminent self-activity. The many biblical references will help at least to describe life more fully. Multiple scriptures that talk about God as living, right? He is the living God. Over and over again, we'll see that phrase. For there is, for who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God? Living God, living God, living God. I think it's important to to grasp that concept. We all have life. God is life. What we have is a gift from God to us. But what God has is eternal. It's eternal. The Bible tells us our life is in His hands, right? Our breath is in His hands. It's a gift from God. Uh, Let's look at Joshua 3.10. Joshua said, By this you shall know the living God is among you, and that He will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Parasites, Girgashites, Amorites, Jebusites. By this you shall know the living God, life itself, life incarnate, is with you. First Samuel. Then David spoke to the men who stood uh, by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who are they talking about? Goliath, right? Goliath. And David is speaking. Look at Jeremiah 10:10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. In His wrath, at His wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure His indignation. Again, over and over, the living God, the living God. Let's look at the New Testament, Matthew 16, verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of living God, right? John 6, 57 as the living father sent me and i live because of the father so he who feeds on me will live because of me interesting so in what sense did jesus have life from the father what do you think Uh, certainly in one way, Jesus can never die. 
But when he says, because he is, uh, in essence, his being is God. But what other, Jesus is, also has another nature, right? What's the other nature? Man, right? And where does man get his life? God. So in that sense, in the, in the sense of his humanity, God, that's right, God has given him life. And when he's on the cross, what's he going to say to get rid of it? To let that light extinguish. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he died. So, we see uh, this in scripture in uh, Acts 14, 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men, the same nature as you. And preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to what? The living God. Who's talking? Do you remember? Paul. Paul and Barnabas. And they are just about ready to get stoned. Remember when Paul got stoned? Because they healed somebody and they all started to bow down and worship him as gods. And, and he says, whoa, whoa, stop. Don't do that. Don't do that. You got to throw these things away. Get rid of this and come to the living God. Second Corinthians three, three, clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God. As you can see, there were 28 verses and I didn't try too hard. So the concept of God being the living God. Next, we look at God as the source of life. Where does life come from? comes from God. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves. With which the waters abounded according to their kind, every winged bird according to its kind, God saw that it was good. So God made it all. In Genesis 7, it says, For after seven more days... I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that, what did he, what, what's he going to say next? I have made. I have made. All life comes from God. All life. That's why all life is precious, right? Because all life comes from God. All life is precious. It, uh, it, it matters. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 39, now see that I, even I, I am he, there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. God is sovereign. He's in control of the living, uh, in every way. Job one. 21, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return. The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is He who is the source of all life. Matthew 22, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was written to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but a God of the living. Mark twelve twenty seven. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Romans fourteen nine. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So 
God is the source, the ultimate source of life, and the resurrector from the dead. Uh, Job had an interesting thing to say in the midst of his suffering. He said, For I know that my Redeemer lives. That's present tense. And he shall stand at last on the earth. So the, the Redeemer, which every scripture in the Old Testament had declared was Yahweh, is going to stand on the earth. Yahweh somehow will stand on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, in my flesh I will see God. What's he, how's he got to do that? If he's dead, how's, in, how is he in his flesh going to see God? Resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. And Psalm 16, For you shall not leave my soul in Sheol. Where is Sheol? It's, it's oftentimes confuses people because it can be translated hell. It is the equivalent of the Greek word Hades and it means the grave. So you will not leave my soul in the grave nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Holy One is uh, a synonym for Messiah. This is the scripture most people point to when they say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 it says that he would rise in, in three days. The Jewish concept of corruption was uh, occurred on day four. Remember when Jesus went to let Lazarus out of the tomb? What did his sister say to him? When he said, roll away the stone, they said, don't roll away the stone. Why? He stinketh. How long had he been there? Four days. So the concept of corruption comes on day four. The idea that you will not allow my soul to see corruption means there was not going to be corruption of that sense of the body before that occurred he would rise again resurrection daniel 12 1 and 2 at that time michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people and there will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time and at that time your people shall be delivered everyone who is found where written in the book what's that book called book of life and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life some to shame and everlasting contempt the resurrection of the just and the unjust and in john 11 what is it that jesus said jesus said i am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me though he may die he shall live and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die <clears throat> Do you believe this? And in John 5. Sure. Shoot. Go ahead. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Yeah. Some, some people take Daniel chapter 12 and uh, where Daniel chapter 12 speaks of both resurrections. What we tend to see in uh, Revelation is um, the two resurrections split. So there's an initial resurrection and a lot of it depends on your eschatology, but there's an initial resurrection at the, at the, if you believe in premillennial 
uh, if you're a premillennialist. There's a, a resurrection at the setting up of the kingdom of God. And the, the, the feast of the Lamb takes place then. So the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and the resurrection of uh, everybody else. Everybody receives their glorified body then as a part of the kingdom. Following the kingdom, there is a great white throne judgment. And the Bible says, and the rest of the dead. And the, and the, so the, so, I mean, I, I don't know that I can make a hard, fast case for it because Daniel seems to speak of both resurrections together. But when I look at one of the important things and one of the things where we, the next book we're going to go into on Sundays is Daniel, actually, because the next book I'm going to go into on Wednesdays is Revelation. And having one to understand the other is important. So, so about the time we finish Daniel on Sundays, I should be done with Psalms by then and able to start Revelation. But so to me, Revelation gives uh, understanding to Daniel chapter 12. There's a lot of confusing things in Daniel chapter 12 if you ever read them, but um, we'll do our best to unravel all that stuff. But if you are a, a post-millennialist um, or amillennialist, you're not looking for the setting up of a kingdom or the rapture of the church, uh, what you're doing is doing the same thing a premillennialist is supposed to be doing, right? Making disciples, um, you know, doing your best to, to transform this world by the gospel until the day at whatever time Christ returns to earth and, and claims the earth for his own. At that point, uh, you have the resurrection that leads to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then immediately after that, the great white throne. So they're a little closer together for, for post-mill or, or all-mill uh, as opposed to pre-mill. That makes sense? Yeah, That's all right. Uh, so anyways, we did God as resurrector of the dead. Let's look at uh, God as a giver of living bread and water. John 4, it says, um, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is who is with you, you would say, give me a drink. Uh, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then will you get that living water? Well, Jesus says, I. And John six fifty one, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And we also see God as the source of all living words. The Word of God described as a, a, a living word. Acts 7, uh, this is He who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to Him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles and gave them to us. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to... Uh, pierce even the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. So the idea, God is life. He's a source of all life. As life, God is the most active, dynamic, moving being in the universe. He's not immobile, static, or dead. He is the most moving mover, yet He remains the unmoved mover. That means God moves, but no one else moves God. 
Make sense? There's not something past God that is controlling God. God is it. So to have the, the prime mover or the first move or the prime cause or the first cause remains uncaused or himself unmoved. But being unmoved does not mean he can't move. As pure actuality, which means he has no potentiality, remember? He has no potentiality. He can't. None of those things are going to change. He himself is the ultimate actualizer of all things. And then last, immortality. Theologically, immortality is applied to God means that He possesses life intrinsically and eternally. God is life. All else merely has life. As life itself, He is the fountain of all other life. Hey, Levi, do me a favor. Grab me one of these out of my fridge. All right, so let's look at the, the biblical basis for the, immor- the immortality of God. 1 Timothy 1.7, now to the king eternal. Well, that should wrap it up, right? Eternal, is there something different? Is immortal and eternal? Well, just in case, he'll say that too. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible to God, who alone is wise, be glory, honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6.16, Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Romans 1.23 And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men. Birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. Incorruptible is the same idea as immortal. Romans 2.7 God gives immortality to some. In Romans 2, 7, thanks. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. That God grants immortality. 2 Timothy 1, 10. But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So how do we find immortality? Through what? Through the gospel, right? Jesus brought it so that we can experience it through the gospel. When we're talking about immortality too, by the way, I'm talking about uh, physical, not just spiritual. There's a resurrection. Remember what Job said? He's going to see God how? In the flesh, right? In the flesh. What's that, what's that flesh going to be like? I don't know. But Paul, when he's trying to describe it, says there are all kinds of different glories, right? From that, the Mormons come up with three different kinds of heaven. But he says there's a glory of the sun. There's a glory of the moon. They're different. They're not the same. One reflects the other. So in some way, our experience on earth reflects the transcendent truth or reality of the body that God has for us. When we die, we're a seed planted in the ground, right? That looks, that's the whole reason behind burial. Burial, the concept is we're planting the seed because God said there will be a resurrection of the dead. And he gives immortality to some. 1 Corinthians 15, here's that section we were just talking about. For 
This corruptible, my flesh, must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. No more. No more death. When is the moment of the last death? What do you think? If you had a timeline, what's the last death going to be? Probably, I would agree, probably the great white throne. Because the Bible declares it, what? This is the second death. This is the second death. After that, he wipes away every tear. No more tears, no more dying, no more sorrow. I don't know, small, minor point, but interesting, right? He must hold, how's how's that scripture go? Uh, Speaking of the kingdom of Christ, he must... Make all his enemies his footstool, or he will he's he sits at the right hand till all his enemies are made his footstool, and the last enemy which shall be defeated is death. So there will be a defeat. God is also the giver of eternal life, right? Lots of scripture there we know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have. Everlasting life. Where does it come from? It comes from God. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life. Where does he remain? Under the wrath of God. Right? John 5.24 Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. So, why is it that we don't come into judgment? How is it that God can give us eternal life? How does He accomplish that? What do you think? Yeah. We we receive the gospel, but why is one person, let's do it this way, why is one person under the wrath of God and another person given eternal life. We believed in Jesus. So, Jesus bore what? Our wrath. Yeah? Jesus took the wrath of God for us, and what did He give us? In return. In return for our wrath, for our sin, for that which we deserved punished for. Yeah. Forgiveness of our sins, and He gives us life. He who knew no sin became sin so we could become. So Jesus became, in essence, Jesus becomes what we were so we could become like He is. We gain that life from Him. Remember, He's the giver, right? He's the giver of life. Wrath of God was poured out on Christ on the cross. We don't have to stand under the wrath of God anymore. That is why uh, Paul to the Thessalonians writes, For we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we read Romans chapter 1, it says there are children of disobedience who are standing in the wrath of God, or waiting for the wrath of God. Why is that different for the believer? Because the believer has changed places. Christ took that. So that we could not experience the wrath of God. 
So we're not appointed to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So although the term life is often conceived in biological terms, it also has an essential spiritual meaning. As applied to God, life and immortal mean that God is the ultimate intrinsic actor or doer, mover, actualizer in the universe. He is life. Everything else has life. He possesses life intrinsically. It is who he is. Somebody else didn't give it to him. Every other living being has it extrinsically. It's outward. It's given from an outward source to you, but for God, it's intrinsic, inside. Um, These attributes of God, life and life immortal, are solidly grounded in Scripture, theology, and church history. Next time, we'll take on the unity and the triunity of God. We'll probably park on that for a while. In preparation for it, I'd encourage you, um, The Forgotten Trinity by James White is a great book dealing with uh, the the concept of the Trinity. Um, uh, Also on on podcast, you can get, um, I think it's Dr. Wayne Grudem, but I'm not sure. But you can get Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, uh, which he teaches through his entire Systematic Theology. He has, you don't have to download them all, there's like a hundred. But he has four on the Trinity, and they're really good. Really good discussions and talking about it. So it might be good to in in preparation for next week. If you can pick up the book, it's not a hard read. It's um, uh, no, it's on podcast. So just go in. Do you guys know how to get? Or if you got a favorite podcast thing for you non Apple people, if you have a uh, favorite podcast player? Just search uh, Wayne Grudem Systematic Theology. It should come up. G R U D Grudem E M. Is somewhere. If you look through your old footnotes, you'll find one. There are some footnotes from Grudem in there. So, but those those four, and they're not. They're the the four tapes are maybe fifty minutes each, something like that. And uh, but they're really good. Um, so I think you'd enjoy them. And if you got time, the book, uh, um, The Forgotten Trinity, it's not, I don't find it to be super complicated, uh, but it's good. It's not like a, a theological treatise on the, you know, why the, the Trinity exists. It's written to believers to just help believers, you know, wrestle with some of the concepts of it. Yeah. What was that? Uh, Dr. James White. If you've ever seen the guys who, uh, we had them here, uh, Bill McKeever, and I don't remember the other Bill, for, for that do the ministry to the Mormons in uh, Salt Lake. Um, it's one of the books that they give because it really gives a solid uh, understanding of Trinity, which is something, like I said, we're going to be defending for a long time. So, so kind of dealing with some of those issues would be good. So that, those, those two things might uh, be helpful for our discussion next time. Anybody got any questions? Comments? We're just happy to be out of here before 9? We're not doing the providence. We're not struggling with the cause of evil. Cool. It's easy. We'll start struggling again a little bit. Dealing with trying to comprehend the idea of the Trinity. Sound good? Um, I think the if you got Kindle, I think I got the Forgotten God for like 9 bucks. So...
Is it $9.99? Yeah, I always forget the 99 cents. So if I ever say I bought something for 900 bucks, it was probably 1000 But <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's a good read, and it's not hard. Um, a couple days you can read that book if, if you got time to read. Cool. George, you want to pray us up? Amen. Thank you, guys. You bet. God bless. You know, to be honest, if you're going to find something that goes into it, I would probably look in uh, reform circles. They got some really good... They've got some really good stuff. And really, in the attributes of God, you're not going to... Yeah, we don't, we don't want that. But the, the, there's a podcast called um, Reform Kids Cast or something. 